Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm Clayton Fletcher, your host, right here in New York City, where we are about to celebrate what used to be the biggest holiday of the year in New York, but... Thanks to uh, factors beyond our control, we're looking at a toned-down version of New Year's Eve. But I'm ready to finish the year off strong with a returning guest, a very good friend of mine. He's also the president and founder of the charity Series of Poker. He's got $8 million worth of cashes, both online and live, which is just so sick. And he's also a coach and a hell of a guy. Matthew Stout is back on the program. Matt, how are you, buddy? Wow, that was quite an introduction, Clayton. <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you, bud? Well, are you afraid that you can't live up to that introduction? Uh, I don't think I signed off on you calling us close friends, but, uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I th- I'll take it. You have slept at my dad's house with me, so I guess <laughs> I suppose that qualifies on a small niche. <laughs> yeah, I would say that puts me in a in a category all my own. So, how's it going, buddy? You're you're in Vegas. What's it like out there these days? Uh, a little weird, but good. Yeah. I mean, it's a little weird everywhere, but Vegas is like a a transient town based on tourism, and it's been a a little touch and go. <laughs> but, no, I hear you. T- tourism is down in New York, also. Uh, you know, I've been working at this amazing place, Westside Comedy Club, on uh, 75th in Amsterdam, right in Manhattan. And, you know, prior to the uh, latest version of the coronavirus, the Omicron variant, uh, things were really going full force. I mean, most of the city's vaccinated, and uh, it seemed like we were getting out of this thing. And then the next thing you know, it just kind of, it's putting a damper on things to the point where Westside Comedy Club was supposed to have two shows on new year's eve and now we're just going to do one big show because uh you know just people aren't buying comedy tickets like they normally do new year's eve is usually the biggest day of the year and this year it, it's not so the biggest yeah, day of the year just for ter- comedy or tourism in general in new york yeah i mean it's it's the biggest day in in the city for visitors more people oh, come to new oh, york for new oh, year's oh, eve oh. than any other day for the ball drop and everything but yeah i mean just as a comedian dude it's like it's always a huge day the clubs do specials they have like uh you know the clubs that have food they'll do like a whole package deal where you get a you know your entree and your dessert your your, all your drinks the comedy show champagne toast at midnight the whole nine yards and it's usually a big thing like it's a huge night for comedy so uh this year it's going to be a, a really fun night but i don't think it's going to be quite what we're used to similarly the uh, events planned for Times Square are substantially <laughs> scaled back from what we're used to seeing on TV. So it's just, uh, you know, another weird year closing out here in 2021. Naturally, yeah. And uh, that whole thing with a dinner menu and a comedy show sounds a hell of a lot better than going to see the ball drop. I remember one time I was like, I'm going to do this just for the hell of it to say I did it. Since I grew up right near New York, I did it when I was like 16. Just rolled in there like a buddy of mine, just like, but it was absolutely absurd. Just trying to get even into the street anywhere near the ball, you have to start miles up and work your way down. <laughs> like they have every exit and every like block blocked off. Like it was definitely a hell of a an experience to say the least. I would much rather be at a comedy club that night. <laughs> yeah, I mean I've had a lot of interesting New Year's Eves. Uh, one year, maybe 20 years ago now, a long time ago, I went to the MTV New Year's Eve party, which is like you're in Times Square and near where the ball drops, but you're in like this nice cozy building and there's lots of beautiful people around and I, I don't remember, like, like Limp Biscuit was playing and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Kid Rock was DJing. Very surreal. <laughs> surreal night to say the least. So... Are you the type of guy that sets goals at the beginning of the year and then looks back at the end of the year to see if he accomplished them or not? 
Um, I I do a little bit of New Year's resolution stuff, but I I tend to try to suck less than I did the week before throughout the year. I often fail and just get worse, like I did this past year. I just or this current year, I should say. Yeah. Um, So the suckometer has been moving in the wrong sucky direction. It's been a crazy year for me. Like even just. Beyond uh, the pandemic itself, it's just been a very tumultuous couple of years in that, um, let me just boil it down. Like, my aunt, who was in her late 60s, uh, like, suffered from a really bad pain syndrome to the point she was having, like, morphine pumps and stuff implanted in her body throughout her life. She had the foresight to see this awful, awful situation coming and uh, killed herself in January of 2020. Um, I I make light of it, but obviously, like, suicide's awful. And uh, I have a lot of people in my family that suffer from suicidal thoughts and tendencies. And, like, anyone who knows me doesn't know me. If Like, my DMs are always open. Uh, Just reach out if you ever want to talk. But... Um, so it started with that right before the pandemic. I actually got married, as you know, uh, just in time before lockdown, uh, on February 29th on leap day in 2020. And then a few months later, uh, in June, uh, my two year old great nephew passed away from cancer in New Jersey and then my 20, he was then 23, my 23-year-old nephew moved in with me after that to kind of start a new life out in Vegas. Then uh, in June of this year, we took uh, took custody of, we, we, got, we officially got guardianship in August, but we took possession of my wife's three little sisters and started taking care of them and moved them here from uh, Texas. Uh, in June of this year, uh, and then we got guardianship in August, so that's been a, a whole thing to try to uh, manage and kind of changed my life quite a bit. Like, I was finally getting used to having a two-year-old son, and they were like, here, take three teenage girls, see how that works out for you. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, well, uh, just think, Matt, I mean, I was I was at that wedding. Uh, right before the pandemic began, uh, it was a great time. Who who could have predicted all the crazy things that were about to happen? Not only all the you know heavy personal things that you just shared, but just kind of globally, yeah. did we really have any clue what we were in for? Yeah, it's like I'm just skipping over the pandemic-related parts of all this insanity. <laughs> it's just like this is like it would have been a really screwed up couple of years for me. I don't have a huge family, like and. We also now, my my nephew who I mentioned, his mother, who's actually like my oldest brother who I don't even talk to, his ex-girlfriend from high school, but she was like a sister to me and I'm still really close with her even though I don't talk to my brother. Because um, my oldest brother isn't in my nephew's life. That's why I'm so close with my nephew. Um, but um, basically she passed away from breast cancer um, and what the hell? When did the series start? So she passed away mid-September okay. of this year. So we've lost three really close family members in the past two years. I, you know, took guardianship of the three little girls and also just kind of like been there trying to help my nephew start a new life while I also try to be a good husband and father. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty it, tall order. I mean especially with the uh, uncertainty all around. But, you know, Matt, you and I first talked here on the podcast back in 2019 um, at the PCA. I believe it was the first time I had you on as my guest. And, uh, you know, you shared a lot in that interview just about kind of the resilience that you have and the the ability to overcome uh, so much adversity you know, do you believe in sort of those, uh, I don't know, I guess like cliche sayings like God wouldn't give you a, a heavy load to carry if he didn't think you could handle it? I mean, what what kind of inspiration do you have to help you deal with 
uh, you know, the twists and turns of just life. I'm not going to get into like the spiritual aspects. I'm t- I, I lean toward being a non-believer, and I just uh, kind of accept how clueless I am in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> um, but ignoring any spiritual aspects of it, I mean, there's a lot of people who I love to death that are relying on me, and that is what keeps me going. Like uh, when. I was just playing poker for a living. CSOP is what like gave me purpose and gave me the motivation because I wasn't I wasn't married. I didn't have a kid. I didn't have my nephew. I didn't have my wife's little sisters relying on me. You know, like and now like there's all these people around me who love me to death, who keep me motivated, and you know taking care of all them and being me taking care of myself so that I can take good care of them is where I'm at now is realizing that you know have to put on your own life mask put on your own oxygen mask before assisting others so so I'm I'm getting back into ice hockey Ryan Lang and I and probably Chris Golick are going to start playing ice hockey together cool Uh, I, I haven't skated I've been playing roller hockey a lot the past few years I've only gotten on the ice and played ice hockey once in the past I Jesus, oh, 18 years. Um, I stopped playing hockey in college because I had a lot of other issues going on and just quit the team. Um, so, yeah, it's been damn near two decades since I've been on the ice. Same thing for Ryan Lang, and he's in the middle of buying all of his equipment now. We're going to start skating together. Um, I'm going to start getting myself back into shape physically and mentally, go back to therapy. And the funny thing is, um, regarding uh, how do I manage it all and being able to adapt the funny thing is I feel like more of what I was talking about then was being able to adapt in poker and to be able to play my best despite adversity and things like that downswings I don't even remember um, all of the content of the interview but ju- judging by where I was at in my life, I don't think it was much uh, as much real life adversity and people passing away and things like that. You really don't remember that interview, <laughs> and that's okay, Matt. I, look, I know you've probably done a hundred thousand interviews since then, but uh, yeah, no, yeah. I remember. Like, I never shared more than that ever in an interview. Yeah, like, I mean, you really that, opened up to me, dude. Part of why we became pretty good friends after that. Yeah. Very good friends. I'm sorry. You introduced me as a very good friend. I can't doubt that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, no, don't, don't, don't deny don't me that, okay? I don't remember the specifics of why I was saying that, you know, like, um, you know, trying to overcome things. I think it was more, I guess it might have also been more life-related just from, like, um, like, childhood stuff and further in the past stuff because I was in a pretty good place in my life at that point yeah, uh, yeah we, we got into it man we, we were talking about you know childhood no, no. trauma drug addiction uh everything depression all of it it got heavy and i was like wow yeah. he just really uh opened up to me and you know to this day and that was january of 2019 um that is one of our uh most commented on episodes of all time you know it's funny people come here they want to hear about poker. They want to hear me talk to great poker players like yourself. But, you know, I think many times what makes a player great is character and makeup. You know, so you end up talking about other things that are sort of not exactly, you know, how to play Ace King under the gun or something. But <laughs> it, it's uh, it's all you can't separate the the brain of the man from the man. Right. Of course not. So it all goes together. So, I mean, you got married. I don't think you expected to expand your family so quickly. I mean, you had the nope. son, and now you have, like, a nephew and a, you know, three nieces and all this other stuff all, all living together. Good thing you bought that big house. Well, no, I actually sold my house in the middle of the World Series of Poker this year and uh, bought a bigger house. Oh, wow. <laughs> Good thing you so bought that bigger I sold my house to open door on October 13th and I had to get the hell out within three weeks. And this, so I had like this this November one or November. I can't remember what day. I think it was November 1st. So I might have sold the house to them a little bit earlier than I said. 
But, uh, yeah, it was like November 2, I had to be out of the house. November 5th and 6th were supposed to be back-to-back CSOPs right before the main event, but then Planet Hollywood screwed me, but we won't get into that on the podcast. We can. Uh, we can. I don't have any loyalty to that. We, we can talk about Planet Hollywood. Too much shade at Caesars. Um, I still have some allies at Caesars, and I'd like to keep it that way. Okay, that's <laughs> But... Yeah, it was kind of a, a crazy lead-up where I just positioned myself to kind of have to do uh, way too much too fast and uh, got very, very overwhelmed during this series. And uh, I'm sure it's one of the reasons that I came in firing with two caches and, like, for a couple grand in, like, the reunion and the COVID and thought I was going to do well and then just bricked the entire rest of the World Series. Oh, I'm in the two-cash club myself. I think I played 29 events. I cashed twice. So, oh, yeah. Sure, played 29 events. <laughs> <laughs> Good times all around. <laughs> yeah, lots and lots of fun to be had there. No, but it's all good. I actually... That was... Uh, let me backtrack to what I was going to say. That's actually, uh, I did really well online during the series in like the five or six sessions I did play and made almost 100k profit to make up for the series. So one of the hands is what like the highlight of all that heater um, that, that we're going to talk about later. It's just a, a hilarious hand, but also had some fun implications and spots involved. But um, then what I was going to say earlier and what I was trying to get to and why I was assuming that I was talking more about poker-related stuff um, when talking about that, just because I was in such a good point in my life at that point, um, was that I actually went to a rational emotive behavior therapist. Um, it's a special type of, you know, very science-based psychology. I don't want to give too much of a summary of what it is because I don't want to... Um, kind of misquote what it is but I actually had a therapist who's a, a, like a, got his PhD from Harvard and learned rational motive behavior therapy from the guy who created rational motive, motive behavior therapy and is now dead so it was an interesting uh, opportunity his name's Michael Cornwall he's available I think he's taking new patients in uh, Vegas if anyone's interested but it, the really funny thing about it was that at um, at a point when he really started to see the full picture uh, of me, he realized that all I needed to do was apply a lot of the same mentality that I have about poker to life, and then I'll be fine. <laughs> like, it was really kind of an interesting realization for me when he tied it all together and was like, you see all the things that you're doing about preparing yourself um, for possible outcomes, trying to, you know, in poker, it's studying and everything and just having the right mindset about not being results-oriented and, you know, dealing with results as they come. Um, a lot of that mentality was just something that I needed to apply to my life and hadn't been doing. And it's like he almost kind of, like, had a laugh at my expense as he's like, why aren't you doing this in life? All you need to do is do all the things you're doing in poker in life, and you'll be fine. <laughs> so treat life the way you treat poker. Yeah. So yeah. how would you, Matt, how would you define or describe your mindset as it comes to poker in terms that would also apply effectively to one's life on Earth? Um, I mean, like... A lot of it's cliche. It's like literally just doing your best. It's like the, the old pat on the back from your parents after you fail a test or lose at some game, whatever. Like you, you need to be honest with yourself about um, how prepared you are, how hard you're working at the things that are important to you, and you need to have the right level of preparation, but also have the mindset of doing your best and being ready for whatever result comes and just trying to go from there and like not just becoming depressed about your failures, which is one of the things that I did way too much of. Um, if a CSOP event didn't raise as much as I wanted it to, if I didn't get as many people to show up as we wanted to show up, like I would get depressed over it. Like not even just like 
get upset. Like I would have like week long depression post event. Like that's not healthy. It's not acceptable. It's not a way to treat yourself. It's there's also a lot about like negative self talk as well. But kind of getting off topic here, I would say that um, having the the mindset of ensuring that you're as prepared as you can be for the things that are going to come up, and then uh, trying to be gentle with yourself about your failures and just trying to learn as much as you can from them. You need to beat yourself up a, a little bit to the extent of you know committing it to long-term memory and trying to learn what you can from it, but you don't want to just go beating yourself up over things that don't go correctly um, for an excessive period of time. Yeah, so in my case, uh, during this World Series, I was as prepared as I've ever been, more prepared than I've ever been. My mindset was good. I was getting tons of sleep. I honestly feel like I played the best I've ever played, and I had the worst. <laughs> I had the worst results, and you know, no matter how long we stay in this game, uh, it, for me, it never stops being confusing. It's like I, I have had so much more success in the past just from getting lucky that I had this year when I was really ready to crush. And it's just, it, it really does mess with your mind because it's one of the few endeavors that what you put in does not equal what you get back. But it's also one of the few true meritocracies remaining. And it's beautiful in that. You can't, no one inherits a successful poker playing business from their father. <laughs> I swear, that is what it boils down to. And like, if you think about it, there's not all that many professions or uh, fields where it's really a true meritocracy and you really have to make it on your own. Yeah, nepotism won't... <laughs> except in a private game bullshit. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the only that thing it, it's not a meritocracy, but... You know, right, that's, right. That's a sub-conversation. Yeah, me. it is. Let's focus on, like, major tournaments, casino <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, of course, there's there's private home games. It's it's nice to know somebody. I have a friend in high places. But, yeah, <laughs> you're right. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you went to, you know, if you were able to get into Wharton School of Business or, or whatever college you may or may not have attended, who your father is and what he did for a living, whether your uncle's a senator. It doesn't matter at the poker table. I love that. So beautiful. Yeah. And... I mean, also with poker, it's just like a, you have to deeply understand that the fish getting lucky and beating you or you sucking some days, it's all part of the game. And it's 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 all part of the grand scheme beauty of it, even if it's hard to see that on the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. And one of the, the, the things that made it easy for me to chuckle a few minutes ago when I talked about how I came scorching out of the gate with two caches for 3k or less and then bricked another I don't know 60 70k <laughs> whatever the hell it was um, the, the, one of the things that makes it easier to chuckle about that even though it sucks and it stings is that I also view the entire World Series of Poker as one big Sunday session it really is right you played 20 30 tour tournaments on a Sunday, that's not an uncommon Sunday for a pro. So, yeah, it's just it's spread out over six weeks. That's all. Yeah. So it, it's literally as easy for me to deal with a bad series once I put it in perspective and calm the hell down. <laughs> it's, a, it's as easy as just kind of reminding myself that that is like breaking one Sunday. And there's literally... Never been one day of poker or Sunday session that's been able to cause me to question my game. Uh, it's that simple. It's just, it's one more series and I'm going to do my best. And I'm also going to go in with the understanding that, you know, you break 80% of tournaments, 90% of the tournaments, and that's how it's supposed to be. And that's part of the beauty if you're looking at the big picture properly. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I've said famously on this podcast many times that I wish all tournaments could be winner takes all. That would be to me the ultimate because then you wouldn't see people trying to ladder up at final tables. But also as a person who makes, you know, a good per percentage of his income from tournament poker, 
I realize that's just a fantasy and it would never really happen and probably wouldn't work out too well for too many of us. But what are your thoughts kind of generally on how over the years tournaments have become uh, more of a flat payout structure and the big, big first place prizes have kind of gone by the wayside and you know players focus on ICM more? What are your thoughts on that generally? Um, part of me wants to just go with the Mac-Lance approach of uh, you can find your edges regardless and you should just be able to beat people regardless and uh, it, it's there's still money to be made, whatever. I, obviously, I don't like it as someone who is willing and ready and capable of battling when necessary and getting all the chips and I... I hate it when, like yesterday, there was I I played the quarter million dollar free roll or Tuesday I guess it was two days ago the WS would be quarter million dollar year end free roll right. for all the circuit ring winners and TLB winners and all that crap. Uh, they made it so that I think it was a 167 player field, 25 percent, uh, 25 players cash. It was like 15 percent, which is a little bit on the higher side, but fine. I don't like. 20% payout structures. Um, I think 15 is okay. I think it's reasonable enough, and it's like the compromise between spreading the money out a little bit and trying to, the venue trying to re-rake everyone and not have everyone go broke too quickly, etc. Right. Um, that also enables them to have higher price points with less variance for players, whatever. But that's a sub-conversation. But um, I also... Like, I hate it when they put us in situations like it was in that tournament where the min cash was $3,800, and then to get double the min cash, you had to finish seven. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. So it was 3800 for uh, for 25th, and uh, I think $7,300 for seventh, 60 k up top. So, like, the final table payout structure was reasonable enough, I think. But they made the main cash so fat that, like, uh, I had to... Well, I mean, I didn't have to. I could have went for it, but I decided to try to play to cash and then go from there, given the payout structure. <laughs> so, you know, gaining a lot of chips to have enough momentum to finish 14th isn't really going to get us far when we're going to bubble a lot, and 14th is barely more than a main cash at 25th. Um, but anyway... Um, payout structures like that are kind of a little silly and like I hate it when knowing ICM kind of forces me to play really nitty in spots but um, you know I'm also fine with the idea of trying to make it a little bit more lucrative like winner take all is you know out of this world preposterous like you're 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 a nutcase um, but <laughs> like it's just because no one's gonna travel like and take shots when they know that they're like ninety nine percent to brick instead of eighty plus percent to brick. You'd be surprised. I think we should try it. I think somebody would play. I think we could probably get uh, a good number of players. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't be anywhere near the numbers we get now, which is why it's just a pipe dream fantasy of mine. But the bigger point is especially as someone who does a good amount of poker commentary, uh, it's no fun watching guys try to win an extra couple hundred bucks. You know, yeah. I want to see people go for it like they would in the old days. The early days of WPT, a full 50% of the prize pool would go just to first place. That was the pay structure. If you look at early WPT episodes, and you'll see everybody's trying to win. Yeah. You know, yeah, now it's I like, well, that. if I can... It would be fun. Don't get me wrong. I think that we should do that in like a 500 or in a run it up Reno 150, whatever. <laughs> like, yeah, but not the main event, right? Yeah. 3500 WPT. It's probably a little bit excessively top heavy at that point. <laughs> okay, uh, fair enough. Fair enough, Matt. You got me. But one of the counterpoints to that is that WSOP gets criticized a lot because they have a lot of payout structure. They just oscillate randomly between, like, really top-heavy payout structures and super-flat payout structures with no rhyme or reason. Yeah. But, uh, one of the things that I've liked is that one of the reasons, and one of the reasons that I have five online circuit rings, I think it's, no, 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 four online, 
two live. Um, but one of the reasons I have four online is because most of them were in a payout structure where it was ridiculously top heavy and I just got to run over the final tables. Um, I like first would be double what second was. So I'm just gunslinging the whole time. Because when you see that, you you realize that the value is in winning. So right. you, you're going to go for it. Did you feel like in those events that many or most of your opponents didn't adjust their games Correct. properly? They just wanted to try to climb whatever ladder there was to climb despite the fact that there was so much more up top? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the reasons that I was so successful in those events is because... Uh, we're playing against, you know, the regulated New Jersey site fields and, and like, you know, primarily New Jersey, even though the Nevada's in there, it's a minority in the field. Yeah. Um, so the the predominance of recreational New Jersey players who don't study ICM heavily um, makes it so that they're still going to play their same game and, you know, try to ladder up and not take the, not make those proper adjustments for sure. So that's one of the things that, like, makes me go back to what I said about how Glance once said, like, yeah, I just, I try to leave it alone and then just try to find the best way to maximize. Like, obviously, we can get a fatter ROI when all the money is up top, but I'm still fine with whatever payout structure within reason and just making sure that I can uh, uh, make better adjustments than my opponents. All right, so you're not on team winner take all. I mean, I am for some random prelim and for funsies. We can do it. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, running up Reno sounds like the place for that, like I think. The only. They used to have an anti-only tournament um, where everyone just anties, you start left of the button, and you can limp for the lowest chip in play. Yeah, no block. So it was just a ridiculous amount of limping dog shit hands. I don't know how much we're supposed to be cursing on this podcast. I apologize. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, so just limping a lot of crap hands and playing post-flop with them. And a lot of people are just making terrible adjustments, folding too much or not knowing how to play their like 8-5 off that they limped first to act with 96-1 to 1 odds. Um, they just don't know how to play a post-flop and things like that. People, Anytime you take someone out of their comfort zone, they're going to make mistakes. And those are the kind of events that amplified those mistakes. And it was a lot of fun to just see people outside their comfort zone for an entire tournament. Mind you, I never cashed that thing a single time when they were running it, but I, it was one of my the events I look forward to the most just because it got me to think outside the box for the day. I wasn't just showing up for another vanilla 1500 no limit. There yeah, yeah no, I remember. They did that for several years. Um, yeah, I, I never played it. You should have. Yeah, well, one of the many mistakes I've made in my poker career, not seeing the value of the anti-only tournament. <laughs> so, yep. um, yeah, so let's hear about this hand that you brought because it sounds like it's going to be kind of a doozy. Oh, boy. So, uh, America's card room, 215, 200K guaranteed, 47K up top. We're eight-handed at the final table. And me and two other guys are tied with around chip lead at 65 to 70 BB effective. Okay, so Matt, are there any players at this table that you're familiar with or that you play with a lot? Uh, there were a couple like ACR regs, but I can't remember anyone except for Alex Condon. Okay. Uh, All right, he, and the table itself is pretty tough, would you say? Huh? I was just asking, was, was the table itself uh, on the tougher side? Um, It felt like it was softer than I would expect for that tournament and that okay. big field for a final table. All right. Um, so, especially given how this hand played out. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. Let's hear it. Here's my supporting evidence. <laughs> <laughs> I open under the gun one with jack and of spades and the small blind and big blind both call. Okay. Yeah, no problem with this so far. Uh, what are their stacks like? Uh, small blind is the other chip leader. Um, big blind, I forget because he didn't play post. I think he was one of the middling to biggish stacks, but not the other chip leader. Okay. Um, 
So flop comes king, queen of spades, three. So I flop an open-ended royal, uh, royal slash great flush draw. And small blind leads out. Big blind folds. And it's on me. And well, what do we make of this? Um, you know, when a player like that, the other chip leader, decides to bet right into the razor like that with a player in between you, uh, I might see that as strength a lot. What do you think? I actually, I, I didn't think this player was good. Um, they had like a slightly losing or slightly winning shark scope over a decent sample size, and I just. I interpret it as uh, a hand that was probably, like, second pair. I, I blocked the flush draws. I figured there would be some flush draws in there, some, like, second pair type hands, or some, like, weak king X, or some, like, ace-jack, ace-10 that he didn't, just didn't want to check all. I felt like he's doing it with a fairly weak range. Okay. Uh, and... It just it's a weird spot for him to be doing this when I have a pretty big range advantage on this board too. Yeah, uh, well it's a surprising lead, no matter what he has. It's an odd sure. play. So my what I'm torn between is like I just wanna raise like take you know, I I would have a slightly significant chip lead and kinda like you know, pull ahead of the other chip leaders at this point if I just raise and take him on the flop. I don't obviously don't want to get stacks in on this board with a draw, no matter if it's the absolute nut draw or not. So, ICM wise, I was just like, I, I convinced myself to could just call because of ICM, but like, in, in normal circumstances, I just wanted to raise flop because I didn't think this opponent's just like capable of leading top two or bottom set. And obviously, like, if you flop a set of kings or queens, you're almost never going to leave this board. If you were slow playing pre, you're not just going to lead out, I would think. No, but, that would be really peculiar to do that. Yeah, just, like, decide to slow play a pre, flop a set, and then be like, all right, time to announce my strength. Like, <laughs> yeah, that just doesn't... I don't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't <laughs> add up. Either. There's no part of that that I just would be like, okay, that seems rational. Yeah, um, so we think he's got a lot of uh, medium strength... Second pair type hand. There. I don't yeah. even think it's much King X. I just think it's like weakish draws and some Queen X trying to see where they're at kind of stuff. Like I just think it's a bad player making a bad play. Right. And every every bone in my body wanted to raise, and I just talked myself into the like, what if he just like shoves sixty five bigs because he's that bad? <laughs> like, uh, like. I just because if I get three bad, it's going to be super awkward. I'm not even going to want to peel. We're just going to have to play for stacks at that point, and it's all good. Yeah, and how short is the shortest stack at the table? If, you, if I get in against the not flush draw, I'm just going to want to shoot myself. Yeah, no, that's brutal. There, there's a few different short stacks. There's uh, a decent amount of like 10 to 15 BB stacks. Nothing like absurdly short, but like you know when we're playing 65, 70 BB effective, there's and there's several shortish stacks at the table. Um, it's a pretty um, bad spot to get in with a draw, even if it's this draw, I would think. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you're a favorite over almost every hand he's ever going to have, right? So, right, but you have but, to be a huge favorite if you don't want to stack off this spot. Yeah, we shouldn't want to stack off because it's just so brutal to get eighth when you have all the chips like that. So Yeah, we're not we're not playing for chips here. We're playing for... You know, I mean, the other thing is, like I already said, like another thing you always have to factor in, and a lot of people that, a lot of, something that's very counterintuitive to a lot of people, um, feel wise, is that the, the tougher the tournament is, the more I should just take spots that are profitable, even if it's a little gambly. Whereas, like, the softer the field is, and I felt this final table was softer than you would expect for how big the final table was, um, is that, I don't want to take close spots when I feel like there's going to be people that are just going to punt to me later if I just hold it together and maintain my 50, 60 BB stack even if I lose this pot. Yeah, no, I hear you. So to yeah. that end, when people shot take, whatever your shot taking buy-in level is, like, don't let it make you clench up. Like, that's when you need to, like, make that big bluff, to make that big call when you think you're right. And, you know, take that one, two, three percent edge because you're not going to find big edges later. Yeah, so um, let's go on a little tangent on that point right there for a second. Yeah, for a second. 
um, when you when you do your uh, coaching sessions with people, do you have sort of advice like that for when they are? You know, you talked earlier in this conversation about comfort zone. So if someone is outside of his general comfort zone, maybe because he's playing a little bigger than usual, maybe a larger buy-in. Maybe he's a player that normally doesn't go above 100, but this day he decided to take a shot at the 215. Do you do you tell them to actively uh, try to keep the same approach? or uh, What kind of advice would you have for someone who's taking a shot? It's not even just keep the same approach. It's like play your game and don't be intimidated, but also go beyond playing the same game and be a little bit... If you're the type that's going to look at spots and not want to take high-variant spots, it's something you want, you kind of even want to shake and be more ready to gamble, which is counterintuitive. People are going to tend to not want to take as big as spots or make a big call on the river, etc. if they're firing whatever their buy, biggest buying level is. For me, it's like if I'm firing a 25K, that's like when I'm almost outside of my comfort zone. Obviously, I like have investors sell share swap whatever um properly for the buy-in level but it's still that's my that's what i think of when i'm thinking of like my shot taking so when i'm playing those it's something where i kind of have to remind myself that i'm not way better than the field like i am in most of the stuff that i usually play and just Um, to clarify that's why it becomes correct to take more variance because variance is actually the friend of the underdog Right. So if someone piles river and I'm in a really close spot in a big tournament or like a bigger buy-in tournament, 10K, 25K, those are the spots where I am more inclined to take the spot and call if I think I'm correct to buy a small margin, even if it's only slightly chip EV profitable because like chips don't just come along handing themselves off in those tournaments. You're playing against a higher caliber player, your your edge is smaller, and therefore you need to go for it more and not be afraid to, um, you know, kind of pull the trigger on a big bluff or make a big call against what seems to be a bluff, etc. Right. Don't don't let it tighten you up because you actually need to take that variance to make up for your reduced skill edge. Yeah, and uh, that's definitely something I would recommend to my students. What I, most of what I'm doing with my students is uh, review, whether it's online uh, hand histories, which are a little bit easier because then you have the video replayer for all details, or just detailed uh, reporting of hands from their notes. Just going over hands with them and just kind of going over the ins and outs of um, everything that I think about in hands and like first listening to everything that they say about their full thought process and picking it apart and telling them what they're misapplying, what they're failing to apply, what they're forgetting to factor in at all, and things like that. It's two hours of stream of consciousness. It goes in a lot of different directions. There's there's times where uh, students have like a specific set of hands or like just specific questions about hands, but um, outside of that, um, it, it tends to just be a lot of in-depth discussion about hands and reviewing stuff, trying to get through as much material as possible. But I think that one of the things that made one of my students so successful it was a, a stockbroker, a stock trader who. Actually, he was a hedge fund guy. Um, it was his buddy who was the trader. Um, a hedge fund guy from one of the biggest hedge funds on Wall Street. So he's like a genius and has all the money. doesn't have to worry about you know, how high my hourly coaching rate is. So he noticed that I'm like trying to get through hands too quickly. And he's like, if we spend an hour talking about a single hand, that's fine. Like, he didn't care. And that's why... You know, we're at a point now where he knows my thought process on every hand he plays. We I barely have to coach him anymore. It's like a, an occasional refresher course. We've done a couple hundred hours together, and you know, being having someone who's willing to just like take that much time to analyze a hand from every angle uh, helped me as a coach in that it it helps you know um, help kind of open me up to. Uh, different ways to kind of try to get the point across and just like really pick everything apart um, in minute detail. And now he's had a decent amount of success. Couple um, WSOP final tables does a lot uh, pretty well in cash. 
That's great. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a testament to you know, his dedication to his hobby, as it were, like listening to you and really trying to learn instead of trying to find a shortcut. In my experience, there are no shortcuts. We've got to do the work. That's it. Yep. All right, so let's get back to your hand. I kind of agree with calling. You know, um, well, I don't we're mind. talking about our hand. How about that? Yeah, yeah, we can get back to it. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, we go back to the hand. I like calling here. You've got the royal flush draw. Just a reminder, the flop is uh, king of spades, queen of spades, uh, and then some low card, and we have the jack ten of spades. So we're open-ended straight flush draw here, royal flush draw. And uh, the small blind surprisingly led into the field of three, uh, and we just we have a decision whether to call or fold. And Matt decided to call for all the reasons. Did you say call or fold? Oh, sorry. No, no, no. I meant to say call and race. Thank you. For... <laughs> we're not folding the royal flush draw, guys. No. Hey, uh, maybe we're playing the series a little nitty, Clayton. Uh... <laughs> flush draws on the flop. Yeah, I folded so many royal flush draws. I wonder why I didn't have more than two caches. <laughs> so, I mean, no waiting at all. Turn is the nine of spades, and I just make a straight flush, no problem. Wow, what's that like? It It felt nice in the pants. <laughs> because the funny thing is, unless, like, I mean, I could make a royal, but literally, I have to worry about the not flush and that that's what he led with it, it, on any card except the nine of spades or the ace of spades. Right. Um, so they just, it's it's a really good feeling. Like, I was going to be plenty happy with any flush, but this just, it felt special in the cojones. I hear you. I hear you. There was a definite tingle. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not surprised. So what happens? Does he bet so again? Whitney is sweating me, and she pushes me out of the way to <laughs> take a picture of the straight flush with her cat. <laughs> That's the wife, Brittany. I have the mouse in my hand, please. <laughs> she could have caused a misclick fold of a straight flush with 47K on top and a final table. She legit... Pushed me out of the way. She said, "Excuse me." Oh wow, she must. Her ears must have been ringing. She just walk in. No, she's texting because Asher's not asleep. No. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So obviously, Brittany is the wife. She's also a you know halfway decent poker player herself, guys. She uh she near bubbled the main event after having ten starting stacks and being in beast mode for the first few days. She was in beast mode. I was rooting so hard for her. After I, you know, recovered, um, made sure that I had not misclicked, folded, he uh, he bombs turn for pot. Oh, my God. And and the tingle, it grew. Yeah, um, I bet it did, Matt. I bet it did. Now, this, now, you know, one of the hands we were, you know, kind of worried about a minute ago was the nut flush draw. And now that's kind of what this feels like. To me, uh, what other hand bombs the turn? We'll get there. Didn't I mention that this was part of my supporting evidence? Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I call, naturally. Yeah, uh, I don't think we want to raise, and I'm pretty sure we don't want to fold a straight flush. Yeah, I opted not to fold. Okay, good guy. Uh, this felt like a pretty easy call. We got a little over pot effective on the river. Yeah. Um, and... River's a brick, and he just sends the full package for like 1.3, 1.5x pot. Yeah, um, I mean, of course we're going to call and win, but what is the risk of calling on the turn? I mean, if we just call instead of raising the turn, is it possible we're going to lose action? Like an action killer could come, like a, another spade, right? Is that the only, as you see it, is that the only downside to calling the turn? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously we don't have to worry about getting outdrawn. We don't want to announce our strength too much, but the only, the main downside is concern that you're going to get the action killed. If he has a set and would have went with it, um, or at least would have continued versus a turn raise and the river's a four flush, um, or even worse, like, you know, obviously the straight flush cards can't come, but if a jack or a ten comes, it's still going to kill more action. If he has... A hand that can't be destroyed. Um, right. So there's definitely a little bit of 
merit to considering raising the turn. I think at the stack to pot ratio, I was fine with taking the risk, yeah, especially just like chip leader versus chip leader. He may find some big folds if I raise turn. Yeah. Now, also, I think a great reason to call is he could be trying to take advantage of the fact that you know that he knows that you know that he knows that there are several short stacks and that neither one of you two big stacks should be trying to bust out in eighth place at this final table when there are all these uh, 10 to 15 big blind guys sitting around. My so, perception of this guy was not that he was like some sicko though who was like capable of going after a chip leader versus chip leader. That used to be my favorite play by the way. Everyone never thought that I guess this was like probably 2014-ish. Uh, might have been a little bit earlier. It just seemed like people never went for a chip leader against chip leader, so I just kind of used that to my advantage for a couple of years. Because they would give you so much credit, right? They would say, yeah. well, he would never be bluffing me here. Right. So We're, we're the two Goliaths. We should be respecting each other. He's not coming after me. Yeah, exactly. That, that was the good old days when people actually believed anyone ever. Uh, <laughs> the game has changed. <laughs> yeah. There used to be spots where you could get credit. Right. Uh, so, River's a brick, and he just sends it. And I just, I just, I can't explain to you how good it feels to be playing at a decently big final table and just have someone send it into a straight flush. I, I cannot even express it in words. Like, I literally just thought of the day of my child's birth and my wedding to compare it to. (laughs) It reminds me of a hand that I played at Fontana Lounge, where I made the nuts, and then I swear, I still can't believe this actually happened. Like, the this was when we played the uh, the Bellagio tournaments at the lounge that overlooked the fountains. Yeah, I remember. And this guy... Right after I made the nuts, the this guy sent it all in as the the fountains went off. <laughs> it's just like is this real life. <laughs> that was pretty surreal. Yeah, uh, I, I'll go with uh, I'll go with it was up there with those moments. Right, right. Uh, so what does he have? Six four spades for a very small and overvalued flush. Wow, wow. I mean, can he get value? playing this way no not from you no absolutely not from me he can maybe from population this may work out against some people yeah that is a pretty sick overvalue there i mean i guess he's hoping you have jack 10 off because my inclination is to just go ham on the flop and then slow down on flush cards if i didn't have the hand that i had right right so if he I certainly would not have recommended he played his hand that way. Um, and it, it wouldn't have worked out great against me anyway, but I guess, I mean, there's some people it might work against. Maybe he was trying the strategy that I was trying a decade ago. Well, he would just never go after a chip leader against chip leader. No, I mean, he's got a flush. He's got value, and he, you know, he might think that you have some jack-10. Like, like the flop lead just kind of... Sets the tone for a lot of bluffing chip leader against chip leader. Yeah. Instead of like, I'm going to play small ball with a six high flush draw. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a, a pretty gross um, overplay. So, uh, what happens? Do we win this tournament? Uh, not only do we win, but six handed, <laughs> six handed, it was 100, 200K. Um, I had 25 million. I, I think I had 15 or 16 million after that hand. And I had 25 million uh, six-handed against a bunch of two to 3.5 million stacks. Wow! And <laughs> it was fun, needless to say. So you were basically um, Joe McKeon. There was a there was a very swift and hostile takeover once that hand occurred. Right, right. It well, was the most fun victory I've probably ever had. Like final table, just wire to wire. That is fun. Well, congrats on that, and thank you for sharing such a fond memory with us. After we you know, started off with uh, some bad news in your life, we get to like kind of relive one of your happiest moments with you. That's great. Yeah, for sure. Good times. So, uh, any thoughts about 2022? 
getting CSOP back on track post-pandemic, we didn't get to run nearly as many events as I would like to the past two years, obviously. Uh, we pivoted online a bit, which has gone decently well, but uh, my real passion is obviously running the live events and having big drunken parties for charity with a poker tournament as part of the features. <laughs> But uh, so I'm going to work on playing more hockey, trying to continue to focus on my family while I try to grow CSOP. Poker is taking more of a back burner. I, I'm going to play a decent amount of tournaments, but it's definitely not going to be my main focus as I try to grow CSOP and try to serve more of our communities. We've done a partnership with Gorilla Gaming and Glenn McCrory, the owner of the company, who is awesome, is currently... Uh, building us 20 tables and getting us 6,000 chips made so that we can take over operations ourselves. CSOP is now a Nevada gaming approved third party vendor of the services for dealing and running all the operations ourselves, which helps us get the rate down from 30 or 40 per person that we have to pay to some casinos and even more if we have to bring in. Uh, for-profit company from, a company from California and now we'll be able to do it for under 20 per person rate um, just paying the dealers ourselves and handling operations ourselves so it's uh, it's a lot of fun we're gonna we're vertically integrating aspects of um, the credit card processing and payments and registration directly through the CSOP website instead of having to set up give smart accounts and sites for each event so a lot of fun things that I was working on in the pan during the pandemic. Since I couldn't run as many events as I wanted to, I put together a lot of pieces on the back end of things that I had been thinking about doing for a long time to kind of vertically integrate and raise as much as we can for charity and keep as much of the money as we can out of the hands of different for-profit companies that offer the services that we need. Well, you know, anybody who's ever listened to this podcast knows what a huge fan of the CSOP I am. Uh, what a big supporter I am of of you and your organization. I just, you know, you continue to amaze me with your ability to take all the negative from your life and somehow convert it into a positive energy that does so much good for so many people who really need help. And, you know, I just, I'm really uh, proud to know you, Matthew. Stop it. I mean, <laughs> I, mean it. I know I'm a comedian, but I can be serious sometimes, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's what I love to do. I mean, I it's I can't imagine working for a for-profit company if I'm not playing poker, doing something poker-related, like taking more and more time off from poker to consult with different charities. It's it's I I would much much rather be making a lot less money doing something I love to do than to sell pieces of my life to the man. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Well, I got to participate in a uh, recent CSOP event a couple of months ago, and I'm proud to say I made the final table. I cashed, and that was not one of my two caches. <laughs> that doesn't count as one of my two caches, but uh, I won some nice prizes. I'm excited to try out Las Vegas Water Sports. I know that they are one of your um, biggest uh, sponsors and supporters, and they always donate uh, to all of your events around Las Vegas, so I'm looking forward to checking them out. I have never been, so I'm excited to see what it's all about. Did I tell you about that yet? What? Have you <laughs> what? been flyboarding before? No. Oh my god. So, after we get off this podcast, go on YouTube, type in flyboarding. Uh, it's, you've probably seen it, but not known what it was called. It's where they strap the hose of a jet ski. You take the steering column out of a jet ski, you basically put a fire hose on the jet ski, right? <laughs> so all the water that the jet ski was going to propel itself with is now going through the hose. You attach the hose to a very small platform that's almost like a hoverboard. <laughs> and you uh, you have it shoot that out of your... out directly down from the middle of your feet so that you go flying in the air. Wow. You can go 30, 40 feet out of the water <laughs> and just hover above the water. And it, you can do all kinds of crazy tricks and, like, a, just dolphin stuff where you dive into the water, fly back out. Like, it's insane. 
Okay. It, it was kind of the impetus for Trevor Pope to start Lake Las Vegas Water Sports. So I think I was the first person to drag Trevor Pope to Lake Mead, um, I want to say 13 years ago. Um, and he ended up like getting his own flyboard, became like a sicko, does all kinds of tricks and crazy stuff, and then opened up Lake Las Vegas Water Sports after that. Um, Trevor Pope, for those of you who don't know, is also a poker player, but you know barely plays anymore. He's occasionally on like poker. I think he was on one of the Poker After Dark Cash games recently. Um, but he won like a 5K no limit World Series of Poker event for over half a million several years ago. Um, has it, but it does a lot of business stuff as well, and was like never fully focused on poker. Um, has uh, has some shares of some different companies, but he, I think he's like the primary owner of like Las Vegas Water Sports, and that's why they've been so damn good to us. Uh, he's a really good guy and like hell, uh, likes to give back. So definitely a company that people should support. They have a lot of different stuff that you can do down there. Fly uh, sort of aside from flyboarding, they have. Uh, uh, paddle boats, kayaks, um, aqua park, um, basically a big playground over water. Um, and then like a cable park where they like put you on like a wakeboard and like the ca a cable like drags you across the lake. Um, a lot of different cool stuff, but flyboarding is easily the highlight of it all. I'm definitely um, going to have to try that. I and mean, I am a thrill seeker. I've done skydiving. Like, I'm not scared, so let's go. Watch some actual good people do it, and then I'll go dig through my ta uh, through my uh, photo album and find videos of me doing it poorly. And I'll send <laughs> you those for entertainment after you're done watching people do, like, the, the, the World Flyboarding Championships in Dubai. <laughs> yeah, that sounds very, very cool. That's so awesome. All right, well, before we say goodbye, Matt, tell people how they can find you. Uh, I am on the Twitter uh, at Matt Stout Poker, M-A-T-T-S-T-O-U-T, -T -T, Poker. Um, I am, well, it's more important that they find CSOP, though. Uh, charity Series of Poker.org. They're at the CSOP on Twitter, and you can find them on Facebook and on Instagram. I think Instagram's just Charity Series of Poker. That sounds right. So we got an event coming up February 12th for Tyler Robinson Foundation. Uh, awesome charity set up by the Imagine Dragons uh, supports the families of pediatric cancer patients and then our big St. Jude Gala which now includes a golf tournament is May 20th and 21st this year right before the World Series of Poker excellent maybe I can come out a little early and participate in that Let's, one wow. you know how great that event is yeah that's a big one I love it that's well, a full dinner program like a separate silent auction and cocktail hour followed by dinner or, or uh, followed by dinner or followed by the poker tournament. It's like an all-day affair, and it's amazing. Love yeah, it's it. a really great time. And if you haven't checked out any of the uh, CSOP events, I highly recommend them. Uh, even if you have to make a special trip to be there, I promise you will never have more fun playing poker than you will with the CSOP. I appreciate that, buddy. And we raised 369 k last year for the kids of St. Jude, and we're hoping to raise half a million this year, next wow, year. That's what I'm talking about. That's a great goal. Yeah, let's do it. Let's get to 500 in 2022. Matt, it's always such a pleasure to get a chance to catch up with you, and uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. For sure. Thanks for having me, buddy. So for Matt Stout and for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening.
baby, when it's tough, it's not rough, it isn't fun.